great pleasure to uh, welcome John Hardy, who uh, is uh, uh, one of our leading uh, international neurobiologist, uh, geneticist, who, if I say that he sort of developed the uh, animal cascade uh, hypothesis, then you'll realize uh, what he meant by the year, because that's something that's been around for a long time, but people are still uh, probing. Fighting is it? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and because John's got to leave, they've got a taxi here at 2 o'clock, I'm not going to go through the background. Okay, just to say, very warm welcome. John. Very nice to be here. And I apologize for being here for such a short time. Something came up which I had to get to another meeting, unfortunately. Uh, and I thought I was going to be coming again uh, to go to your dementia strategy meeting. Uh, the DVI, and that was cancelled too. So I will be here again, and when I come again, I'll email around, and then it'd be great to, to spend more time talking to people. So it's a great time to be a geneticist. Um, you know, we uh, we uh, we've gone from an era when we could only find genes which cause Mendelian disease, uh, and uh, when Nick and Kevin were in the lab, in fact, um, uh, to, to an era where we can find uh, genes which predispose to risk either rare <coughs> variants, which let's say are present in 1% of the population, increase your risk by default. We find those variants by exome sequencing uh, and or by looking, doing GWAS, where we look for very common genetic variability, which 20 to 30% of us might have and which marginally increase our risk. We've got that we can find those through GWAS. So now we can we've gone from that era when we could just find one narrow frame of, of genes to an era when we can find anything really. Given enough money, but it's still expensive, and given enough well characterized samples, and well characterized this is the key there, we can find that any any type of predisposing gene. Uh, so this has me meant that we've gone from an era when um, we were really starving for, for clues, you know, uh, to an era where we have huge amounts of genetic data, we know huge amounts of risks, of what the risks might be. And I think that this is beginning to, talk, to tell us that we can start to understand what the pathways to disease are and start to understand why uh, certain neurons are, are, are susceptible to certain disease processes. So we're changing, I think, to, under, to we're beginning to be able to think about selective vulnerability. When I was teaching at St. Mary's, one of the questions we um, asked um, uh, students on the, uh, on, the, on the BSD course in neuroscience was what underlies selective vulnerability? And I always thought that was a great question to ask because of course it's unanswerable at that time. And now I think we're beginning, we're beginning to be able to answer it. No, but absolutely, as you'll see, no way, no way through it. <clears throat> One of, I'll just give a little bit of history and also just outline these databases which we've created in the last year. And um, uh, because, because they at, the use of these databases actually was key to the work I'm going to be uh, talking about, but um, we, I'll just explain why we made them. What they are is this is about two, getting on to the 200 control brains, 10 brain regions, 
uh, human contro control human brains, mainly from the Edinburgh uh, Fast Death Brain Bank, where we have done whole genome expression and whole genome genotyping. And so that means you can look at genotyping across the, across the genome and correlate that genotype with expression and say, how does any individual SNP influence the expression of any individual gene? That was the reason we did that, and it's, it's proved to be very useful. For example, using this database, we showed that uh, the risk SNP for Parkinson's disease in the synuclein gene was associated with increased expression of synuclein. And the risk SNP for tau was associated with um, increased expression of certain isoforms of tau. That's why we created it. We, but in fact, as we have created this database, and it's freely available, you can go to brainiac.org and look at the data yourself. Um, um, we've begun to realize that it gives us an incredibly rich data source uh, in terms of looking at things, uh, at genes which co-vary. And we've started to use covariate analysis of gene expression to start to try and pull out pathways. And that's what I'm going to talk about to some extent. This database, which was actually only released about a month ago, is uh, taking, uh, this is specific for us, this is for all diseases, but this is really an, an Alzheimer database. What this is, is um, uh, mice which develop plaques, they're APP transgenics, or mice which develop tangles because they're tau transgenics, and looking as the pathology develops, how does gene expression change? So matching gene expression with uh, pathology in these mice. And of course, the nice thing is that it's, we've managed to separate plaque pathology from tangle pathology and said, what is the response in gene expression of the pathologies independent of each other? I'm not going to talk too much about this, but I'll just say that interestingly, we found the first gene we have found in Alzheimer's disease by exome sequencing was a gene called TREM2, which is involved in microglial activation. And interestingly, in this database, TREM2 is the gene whose expression is most altered by plaque pathology. So there is, a, <coughs> it's, if you like, the leading change in uh, gene expression in, in transgenic mice with plaques. And it is, as we now know, uh, uh, well, it was the first gene that was found by us in the deco involved in, um, in Alzheimer's disease. So the, these databases are both online, you can look at both of them. Uh, there's been some interesting data, a bit off the topic of my talk, uh, which I thought I'd um, mention. This is, uh, this is looking at the risk SNPs for multiple sclerosis. We show that one of the risk SNPs for multiple sclerosis alters the expression of this gene, CYP24A1, and this gene is the gene which is, controls the metabolism of vitamin D in the brain. And people who have high vitamin D metabolizers have increased, this says, have increased risk of, um, of developing MS. So it fits, it fits with a huge amount of epidemiological data, in fact, some of which came from Oxford, about um, about uh, vitamin independent genetic evidence which fits with a vitamin D pathogenesis of, of, um, of, um, of MS. This is um, 
it's always interesting to know what the difference is between men and women are. We all have our theories. And, um, but this, this <coughs> looked at um, this database at uh, men and women in terms of their gene expression. And about 1 to 3% of genes have very different expression between men and women. And actually, a lot of them are to do with the immune system, which is where the women seem to have a stronger immune system uh, than the men, which I think is also interesting. We've followed with these data that I'm talking about so far, we've generated on arrays. We are now in the second wave of this uh, work, uh, generating uh, transcriptome sequencing data. So we're sequencing all the RNA rather than arraying it. And we've already seen that this gives us even more to play with because, uh, for example, there's about 60 genes in the genome where there is imprinting, in other words, sorry, known to be imprinting, where uh, you only express either your, the uh, allele you get from your mom or the allele you get from your dad. But actually, when we look at this data, we can see that there's probably twice as many. So there's about 60 other genes, so uh, the new genes that we're just going through at the moment, which are imprinted like the, so this is going on at the moment, and the other, and the other nice finding is that, um, well, you see what this is, a list of authors that appears at the end. That tells you that there's at least 200. <coughs> but in this paper, uh, our data was important because a variant which had been shown to influence hippocampal size uh, turned out in our data set to influence the expression of a growth factor in the hippocampus. So, it, this, you know, these are really kind of rich data sources, which we're still working on. So, selective vulnerability is clearly complicated. Um, and I, I, I want to start by saying that one part of it is clearly uh, templated. And I absolutely, uh, uh, absolutely accept this. Um, this, uh, however, is what I'm going to talk about, the intrinsic susceptibility. These are a couple of papers uh, showing other people's work on um, the show that I do believe in, 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 uh, in templating. Uh, as, uh, this is the case. And as I said to Margaret Aziri, in a sense, you know, the, some of this work started here in Oxford uh, with TPS Powell, Margaret, and uh, Carl Pearson, who showed the, uh, the uh, very exquisite architecture of tangled pathology in the human cortex. And in a sense, I, I really feel that that was the start of this, uh, part of the start of this work. I also showed this paper, which was sent to me by Martin Turner um, uh, a couple of months ago, uh, because he shows this idea of, uh, <coughs> of uh, templating, in templating in disease, perhaps has been around for a lot longer than we kind of appreciated. This is a paper that he sent to me of, temp of um, like transmission of motor neuron disease. Anyway, now to move on to the main part of my talk. Um, GWAS have been fantastic. Uh, you know, we geneticists didn't find anything for uh, in Alzheimer's disease from 1995 to 2007. We went 12 years without finding a gene. We managed to keep funding going, but we didn't find anything of note 12 years. Uh, and that's because uh, you know, what we were doing is guessing genes and then testing them for association. And that's just not a very good 
that's just not a way, good, good way of doing things. And the, the advent of the GWAS era was fantastic. And this is the current Alzheimer GWAS led by Julie Williams in Cardiff. Cardiff. And you can see 30,000 cases and 44,000 controls. And this is the Bonferroni correction line. Here's APOE, which will go way through the roof, actually. <coughs> here's all the other, here's all the other uh, genes. So we're now finding a lot, a lot of genes. And uh, to some extent, a list of genes is rather, is rather boring. Much more interesting is to be able to try and put these into pathways. Uh, now, uh, I'm going to talk about how that's, how, uh, that's been done um, in a second. I'll just say that I don't think that we're going to keep doing GWAS beyond this. Um, firstly, there's a, the law of diminishing returns. If you've genotyped 30,000 cases, it's not worth genotyping another thousand. It's only worth genotyping if you're going to genotype another 10 or 20,000. So that's the first problem. Um, it just the experiments just get inordinately expensive. Uh, but the other problem is population stratification, which is not appreciated, <coughs> and that's because the control, the uh, in the Alzheimer case, and actually in the UK in general, uh, large numbers, are, the cases tend to come from all over the country. Whereas in this case, the controls, actually something like half the controls come with, from within 30 or 40 miles of Cambridge. And if you in Oxford should realize perfectly well that they're not representative of the country. So there becomes a problem to do with population stratification when you get to very, very high numbers. So I don't think that we will continue to do this. The other point that is a problem is that as you increase your numbers, inevitably your quality control goes down. And already, uh, genes that, for example, like the gene C9ORP72, which we identified as an FTD gene, we actually now occasionally see this in about 1% to 3% of Alzheimer cases, almost diagnosed, clinically diagnosed Alzheimer cases, almost certainly because it's a contaminating it's you know a misdiagnosis. So you tend, as your numbers go up, your your the, the possibility of cross contamination goes up. But um, so I don't think we're going to keep doing these uh, forever and just increasing. <coughs> but the important point, and this is this is immediately obvious from the first couple of papers, was that we started to see that the um, that the genes map to pathways. These are the first seven or eight loci which were identified. APOE, of course, is an old locus known for a long time. But here you see all the first seven or eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, which were identified. And you can see that they're mapping immediately uh, in, uh, to, the same, to the same pathways, to the same pathways. Uh, and, so, and that is the key, that it was, for me, the, the key finding. And this was very nicely put together in this paper, which although it's only in plus one, I think is uh, a very important, <coughs> a very important piece of work. And I would say that um, I would not, I would have a high threshold for believing a gene which did not map to any of these four pathways in Alzheimer's disease. I think these are the four pathways for Alzheimer's disease. And this approach started me to think about, path, about pathways. Now, the very nice thing about this 
the immediate consequence of thinking about pathways is that uh, you can use that, and here's the Bonferroni correction line again, and this was done by Valentina Moscovina. You can do that, you can use this to look in this sub Bonferroni area and say what genes in this sub Bonferroni area map to the same pathways. And you see, actually, a lot of them do. And so you can provisionally uh, say that these are probably genes too. So it gives you, I mean, you have to be careful when you're trying to trick Bonferroni. It, he's a dangerous guy and comes back to bite you. But you can provisionally, with that caveat, um, say perhaps these are genes as well. It gives you another scrape of the, uh, another scrape of the barrel. So that is then the pathways to, those that are then, were then became the pathways that we could see to Alzheimer's disease. We have done exactly the same uh, approach to Parkinson's disease. And what do we see in Parkinson's disease? What we see is, uh, we see many lysosomal genes, and, the, and really the clearest is um, GBA. The clearest is GBA, uh, which I'll talk about in a, a minute and a se separately. But there are other lysosomal uh, genes in here too. I can never see them when I'm right up against the board. But there are other lysosomal genes in here too. And in fact, many of the genes are, are turning out now as we understand the biology to be lysosomal. Uh, and others are turning out from the Mendelian disease and also from these GWAS analyses to be genes involved in mitophagy. Interestingly, the other thing which is also turning out is dopamine metabolism. GCH1 <coughs> is for real, and on chromosome 22, we, we now know that the uh, DeGeorge uh, locus, uh, which has, um, I think it's Compton, I can't remember if it's Compton, or, anyway, it has a dopamine <coughs> metabolism gene, is also involved. So that is also coming out. So we see, again, pathways uh, pathways to disease. Yes, yeah, sorry, I should have said, absolutely, sorry, <coughs> synuclein. Synuclein is in fact the top hit, I'm sorry, thanks for, for reminding me. Uh, synuclein, in fact, it was the first hit, thank you. Uh, synuclein was the first hit. We already knew that gene duplications and point mutations in synuclein came out in the Mendelian forms of the disease, and here we show really convincingly that genetic variability at the synuclein locus contributes. And in fact, we know that high expressors have an increased risk of, uh, of disease. <coughs> that, uh, so that Im immediately points at uh, the lysosome uh, through the GWAS. And we have gone on now to look at uh, dementia with Lewy bodies. And I'm going to show you the data in a second. Uh, but dementia with Lewy bodies, I think, is, has been fascinating for us. Uh, the first paper was led by Ellen Sedransky. Uh, and what she showed is that uh, she was the original person to show that GBA was a risk locus for Parkinson's disease. In this, in this uh, uh, analysis, uh, this, this big <coughs> consortium which we're part of, uh, showed that GBA mutations were equally a risk for dementia with Lewy bodies. In fact, just as an aside, if you have two patients coming to a movement disorders clinic, um, uh, when they're at the same stage of disease, and one of them has a GBA mutation, and the other has a LERC2 mutation, 
uh, the GBA mutation is very likely to go on and develop dementia, whereas the LERD2 mutation probably won't. So there is a there is a, there is an input there is actually information in the genetics about uh, the ongoing you know how the disease outcome. Anyway, so so this uh, this is showing you then that the Lewy body is important in dementia with Lewy bodies. And uh, <coughs> we then did this GWAS, which I'm now going to show you for DLP. It's not a full GWAS because we, could have, we couldn't afford the chips. We've now got the chips. Um, I'll show you that, but I'm going to come back and make another point in a second. So and this is the, the underpowered GWAS for dementia with Lewy bodies. APOE comes out. We've already, we already knew that uh, APOE was a locus for dementia with Lewy bodies. But here on chromosome 4 are, the, are peaks, uh, one of which is synuclein, and the other is a lysosomal gene, SCAR-B2. And these are both lysosomal genes which are uh, important in Parkinson's disease. <coughs> so let's zoom in on them. And when we zoom in, so we're now looking at the same data, but we've, we've, just, we've blown it up so you're only looking at the gene. Here you, hear the, here you see the synuclein locus, and here you see the SNPs which are associated with two, uh, with the disease. And um, red is PD. So the uh, the PD SNP is here at the three prime end of the gene, and here is the DLB SNP at the five prime end of the gene. At SCAR B2, which is here, here is the B, P, uh, PD SNP again. This is at the five prime end of the gene, and here's the SCAR B2 SNP right over the middle. Of the, uh, of the <coughs> so although the same genes are coming up, the um, and we know as I said that SCAR-B2 is lysosomal. Although the same genes are coming up, the precise point of association is different. And we know in the t in terms of synuclein that it's genetic variability in expression. So what this is saying to me is that um, probably expression is important in both diseases but that uh, there is a difference in the control of expression. And one can imagine that difference of expression being of two, two possible types. The first is cortical versus nigral. Maybe the, the, maybe the DLB is showing genetic variability in cortical expression, and the uh, PD is nigral expression. Or, and this is, the second is my preferred option, my preferred explanation, the, in PD, you see the um, uh, expression, the, if you like, the resting genetic variability and resting expression. But in, uh, in DLB, you see the expression in the context of an amyloid load. So in the context, so you're looking at how, perhaps, how does amyloid expression alter uh, in the context of amyloid deposition. That's my, that's my preferred. I've got no more data than I've shown you, but that's my. Uh, preferred um, explanation. Again, though, this turns out to be the lysosome. And then I'm just going to go back a couple of slides to make a, a, a point which I think is really interesting. So <clears throat> I've just been talking to you about GBA mutations. GBA mutations, when homozygous, give Gaucher's disease, which is a, a lysosomal storage disorder. When heterozygous, they predispose both to PDE and to DLB, as I've just indicated. So heterozygous mutations uh, in, in, in GBA predispose 
to, um, to uh, DLB. Now, GBA mutations are not the only mutations which cause Gaucher's disease. There's a rare cause of Gaucher's disease, which is supposing mutations. These are very rare, and we, unfortunately, I've not been able to get any cases. They are literature cases. The cases in the literature and scientific literature are from Poland and Italy, and we've not got uh, any cases of our own. It would be very interesting to know whether supposing heterozygosity predisposes <coughs> to dementia with Lewy bodies and PD as well, but we just don't know that. But I want you to hold that in mind. A major cause of FTD is progranular mutations. And I'm going to show you the paper in a few minutes. Pro heterozygous progranular mutations cause uh, FTD in an almost fully penetrant fashion. We now know that homozygous progranular mutations <coughs> cause a lysosomal storage disorder. So we have an analogy here with a lysosomal storage disorder in the homozygous case. And interestingly, progranulin and supposin are homologues of each other. So there is a parallelism between the, the, the etiology and pathogenesis between these two different uh, diseases, where you get homozygous mutation causing AEM, lysosomal disease, and heterozygous predisposing to, to dementia. I think that's an area which deserves further study. What I've been thinking about, what I've been saying then, is that, uh, the, that we're beginning to see that there are pathways to disease. And with this in the, back, with this in the background, we have started to do a systematic analysis of this using our expression, analysis, expression databases. Can we, see, um, can we see, if we take all the genes for a particular syndrome, do we start to see commonalities in terms of their expression profiles? And the first one we did was uh, ataxia. The first disease area we chose was ataxia. And the reason we chose ataxia was twofold. Firstly, the cerebellum has the simplest, to my mind anyway, the simplest <coughs> neuroanatomy. Uh, and secondly, um, secondly, there are a huge number of genes we know cause ataxia. And so we have both simple neuroanatomy and a rich data source. And so what we did was did this whole genome expression analysis of all 34 genes which cause, <coughs> uh, which cause ataxia. And when we did this, we found that many of the genes mapped to two what are called modules. The first module was a series of genes, here's some of them, ataxin-3, ataxin-10, TTKBK2, AFG3L2, uh, which map together. And when we look at GO and K pathways, these are ubiquitin proteasome genes. So one set of genes is ubiquitin proteasome genes. And when we look at this, this is a picture from the Allen Brain Atlas. These, uh, these genes are expressed in the uh, granule cells. The other set of genes, um, and here we'd already thought about this because of, we've previously been working on this gene here, ITPR1. These genes map to calcium homeostasis, and when we look at these in the uh, in the um, 
in the uh, animal brain atlas, we see that these are Purkinje cell genes. So, what the, I, I, I kind of love this. I think that this is what it's, t it's telling you. It's telling you, taking this example, that uh, if you have uh, a mutation which disrupts your homeostasis, the calcium homeostasis, the most likely way that this will manifest is as an ataxia. The, the cells which are co closest to a catastrophic failure in, uh, in if they have a disrupted calcium homeostasis are the, uh, are the Purkinje cells. And inter interestingly, since we did this, um, Rich Guerrero and Jose Brat in my group have just found a, th a third gene in a series of ataxia um, patients from uh, Portugal, uh, which uh, is involved in DNA repair, and Adaxia telangiectasia, of course, is a DNA repair gene. So I would say that they would say, well, not I, they would say, they are saying that there's another module of, uh, of, of ways you can mess up your cerebellum, uh, and that's through DNA repair. Another module of genes maps to, to the to uh, the cerebellum. So there's a really, this is the cleanest example I'm going to give you. Everything else is, and I'm, uh, this is the most convincing. The other examples I'm going to give you are not as convincing. This is, this is showing the uh, keg and go pathways and where the genes map to and what they do in terms of calcium signal. So this is what I've just said. Uh, now, uh, so I'll just move on from that. Of course, the ma a major impetus for us has been looking at um, Parkinson's disease. So we've obviously been doing the same type of analyses for uh, Parkinson's disease. Oh, one thing I should have said is these modules, ataxia modules, they only occur in their complete form in the cerebellum. So we don't see the same genes map to the same modules in other tissues. So the module is cerebellum specific. Um, and this, this is, that is the same type of thing is all, also true here. Only in the nigra, only in the nigra, there is a module which contains synuclein, parkin, and pink one. Uh, this module, as, as has been written here, uh, is poorly preserved in other brain regions. That means Synuclein and Parkin might map together, but sorry, Parkin and Pink One might map together, but but not with Synuclein. Only in the in the Nigra do they all map together. And when we did this work, we did this work just about uh, 18 months ago. Although in fact it was submitted to Annals yesterday. Um, we, when we did this work, uh, this gene we were we saw that this gene also mapped to the module, and um, this. RAB39B, and subsequent to th this mapping to the module, Paul Lockhart in, um, in, uh, in, in Australia found a family with um, an, uh, a mutation in that gene. So in a sense, our work was, was um, this is his paper in the American Journal, very nice paper. Um, so this module, mapped, this module mapped to the other genes in the module were involved in complex one of the mitochondria. And when we knocked down uh, RAB39B, and, and, uh, and this was done by Andrei Abramov, 
we saw, and I won't pretend to understand this diagram, um, this, uh, this uh, gene, um, knocking down this gene, disrupted selectively complex one in the mitochondria. And so in a sense, the expression co-analysis was predictive of the cell bio biological uh, assay. So then now we've gone on to look at other other uh, genes and, and, G, G, and, uh, and gene loci. We're kind of marching our way through the path through syndromes. Um, I made a slide for it. We've just completed our analysis of neurodegeneration with brain iron, and we're just writing that up. And those genes map to oligodendroglia in the um, in the white matter. So it it kind of fits every disorder. You know, you can do this with. It's very exciting. Uh, anyway, so we do, but we've done FTD and ALS. This is the list of genes we started with. I'm not going to talk anymore, and I, I'm, I'm going to start with a confession. I'm not going to talk about any more about SOD1 for ALS and TAU for FTD. And the reason I'm not going to talk about them is because they don't fit. So I just want to. Be, so I, I just, uh, if I, in the interest of full disclosure. I know that these are genes and I'm now going to ignore them because they don't fit with my idea. So let's, uh, let, as long as you're aware that you're, you're not being told the whole truth. Um, so these are the genes then we started with. Uh, FUS and TDP43 for pure ALS, C9ORF, VCP, P62, optinurin, and ubiquilin 2 for, um, for um, FTD and ALS. And then for uh, FTD alone, uh, progranulin and CHIMP2B. So those, that's how we divided these up. We treated them all separately. And the, fir I, the first thing is to reiterate and extend what I said before. The FTD alone genes really are lysosome. It really comes out of the lysosome. So in this paper on FTD, led by Viviana van Dielen, uh, the locus TM106B uh, came out, and that turned out to be a lysosomal, that turns out to be a lysosomal uh, protein. So again, a for pure FTD, a lysosomal gene comes out. This is the, the paper I said where uh, this is to prove progranulin homozygosity uh, causes uh, uh, a lysosomal storage disorder. This is the paper from a couple of years ago. And then we've just completed and published our GWAS for FTD. And again, the genes which <coughs> came out of the GWAS were HLA, uh, inflammation comes out uh, over and over again, and cathepsin C, which of course is a lysosomal gene. So I think this again is pointing at, for, FT, for an FTD phenotype, pointing at the lysosome. Now with regard, then we've got, this is just to summarize the data because people haven't appreciated that, 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 uh, S, that P62 is a, an FTDALG. <coughs> this is the first paper uh, from uh, Katerina Rojaeva uh, showing uh, FT, uh, S62, uh, P62 uh, mutations. This is our paper which also showed it in uh, motor neuron disease, and this has now been uh, confirmed. So clearly it's an FTD uh, ALS gene. And we, when we do then co-expression analyses of all of these genes, 
we see that they map in the cortex, they map to a module, and surprisingly, it's perhaps not surprising, I think this is ubiquitin 2 actually, uh, it's not surprising that these genes map to the same module, uh, they, they were all known to be P62 related, but more surprising, DENL72 maps to the same module, or C9OF72, and that's surprising in a sense because we've always, we, I guess the field has thought this is RNA toxicity, and I'm, you know, I'm sure that that's part of the story, but this is kind of suggesting that from a functional point of view, the protein maps to the same basic function as the other FTDALS genes. I don't understand that, it's just, this is just a finding. My suspicion is that, um, my well, hypothesis more than suspicion, would be that, uh, that as the disease progresses, you get, the reason it's pathogenic is because you try and deal with the problem through uh, activating uh, the ubiquitin proteasome system and you increase the expression of this locus and that then sets off a catastrophic cycle. That's a kind of off the top of my head uh, suggestion, but it does suggest that the function of the protein is related to the pathology in some way. But anyway, the bottom line is that the, these genes map to the ubiquitin proteasome system. We haven't done uh, the ALS genes because other people have done ALS, but of course the pure ALS genes that we know about are RNA metabolizing genes. That's TDP43, um, uh, <coughs> FUS, and now Matrin3 uh, are, are clearly, um, clearly uh, uh, mitochondrial function genes. So the overall message then uh, of my talk is summarized here. That I think that in part selective vulnerability reflects neuronal function in the sense that uh, for reasons to do with their function, different uh, neurons are closer to failure uh, in response to different uh, insults. And that each neuron types have different, if you like, catastrophic clips that they're closest to. The best example, I think, is Purkinje cells in calcium homeostasis. Uh, granule cells, ubiquitin, proteasome, nigral neurons, mitochondrial complex one, cortical pyramidal neurons, I think uh, the lys lysosomal function is clearly important, and uh, pyramidal neurons and motor neurons, uh, it's uh, the, ubiquitin, uh, the ubiquitin proteasome system. Of course, the ubiquitin proteasome and the lysosome systems are, are very closely uh, related. So that's my overall thesis. Now the interesting, one, one thing I'll also add though, is that when we see, uh, when, we, when we see for example, uh, the lysosome being involved in FTD and in DLB, in no case is, so far anyway, in no case is it any of the same genes. So, you know, it's different elements of the lysosome different elements of the lysosome system. When we see HLA associations for different diseases, in each case it's a different HLA association. So when we, the inflammatory system uh, is involved in many of the diseases, I've shown the F, briefly showed the FTD data, it also comes up in PD data, and it also now comes up in AD data. In a, a, each case it seems to be a, a different HLA type. 
So uh, what I think this is pointing at is, is very clear commonalities in terms of vulnerability. <coughs> but it's also saying that although this is pointing in a general way at selective vulnerability, there's an enormous amount to do to understand why different lysosomal dysfunctions give rise to different to different to different disease outcomes. So now of course the other point of say finally of course we see this as an important as a way forward um, both in predicting new genes for these diseases of course it kind of helps in that way as, as uh, Valentina S. Mosquina's Alzheimer talk uh, Alzheimer analysis show but it also of course says points us towards how we might think about treatments for these different uh, disease categories. Once we understand the cellular weaknesses, we can perhaps start thinking of interventions. Thanks very much.